being uh, uh, alongside the Father in the Godhead. And then there's Mark, and Mark's uh, Mark's emphasis is uh, about Jesus's authority, right? And, and when Jesus goes around, everyone is shocked and and uh, blown away by Jesus's authority in the book of Mark, and that's that's a really big emphasis. And in the book of Luke, it's it's uh, there's um, a big emphasis on Jesus's heart for the broken and for the the for often forgotten. Now, each of those things can be found in all of the other books, but those are just an emphasis. But sometimes it can help us understand why the author wrote the book the way that he wrote it. Um, when we think about the emphasis, the emphases. Um, then in Matthew, I think the emphasis is is really clear, and that is that Jesus is the fulfillment of Jewish history. When you go through the book of Matthew, he is going to quote the Old Testament way more than any of the other uh, gospels. He, he loves to quote and to show you. He wants to actually spell it out. This is how Jesus fulfills this promise. Or this is how Jesus or something about Jesus fulfills this thing that was written here and was written there. Um, and he, he'll just say, this was in fulfillment of dot, dot, dot. And he'll quote the Old Testament passage. And so uh, there's this sense that Jesus fulfills all of the things that Israel's history, that Jewish history had been going towards. Um, in the book of Matthew. And uh, in particular, in particular, Jesus is uh, identified as a new Moses in the book of Matthew. There's uh, a great, um, huh. there's a, uh, a great deal of similarities and comparisons between Jesus and Moses in the book of Matthew. Uh, for instance, the law, the Torah, the instruction of God for the people of Israel. Moses delivered from a mountainside to the people of Israel. Uh, and in the book of Matthew, Jesus stands on a mountain and delivers a reinterpretation of that law. Um, he quotes, when we go through the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, you've heard it said, well, a lot of times you may not know that, but he's quoting Moses. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Moses said that in the book of Exodus or Deuteronomy, one of the two. I don't remember for sure. Uh and then there are things where they're similar, but Jesus is clearly given kind of a preference over Moses. There's the uh, G Moses because of his sin and because of his his lack of faith at a certain point in his life is not allowed to cross the Jordan River. On the other hand, Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River, uh, doing sort of a spiritual crossing of the river. And then uh, Moses spends 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness. And Moses, lucky Jesus, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, the uh, <laughs> Poor Moses. Um, he, uh, so 40 years in the wilderness, and, um, and he's tested. And the people of Israel are tested in that wilderness. And what happens to Jesus when he is in the wilderness? He is tested. Uh, the, they both, there's this sense of coming out of Egypt, too. For both of them, right? In Matthew's gospel, he makes a very clear point to say that Jesus ran away. Jesus' family ran away from Herod and went to Egypt, and then he comes back from Egypt when it's safe to do so. So there's this similarity that I think Matthew wants to draw out. There are five books that are considered the books of Moses. Uh, Genesis, uh, Exodus, 
Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and Numbers are these books of Moses. That's not necessarily to say that Moses wrote the books down, but the, the book revolves around Moses' ministry and the stories told by Moses and the lineage of Moses and the teachings of God through Moses. Um, and then in Matthew, Jesus has five different speeches in the book of Matthew. Um, so the Sermon on the Mount is one of those speeches, but there are five different speeches and they're all giving instruction. So there's this, this similarity in the way that he structured his own book. And then, of course, uh, he saves Moses saves people from Pharaoh, or he, on behalf of God, is the active participant in the salvation of Israel from Pharaoh. But Moses is not capable of saving Israel from their sins, right? Because in the in the desert, the reason they're there for forty years is really tragic. The reason they're there for 40 years is because of the sin of the people and the, the hard heartedness. And they're wanting to go back to Israel and they're doubting of God. And Moses can't save them from that. And so the generation that is rebellious dies in the wilderness and it is their children that are allowed to go into the land. And so Moses meets a limit. Moses is not capable of undoing that sin. Moses is not un He's capable of following God in a way that opened up a pathway for the people of Israel to be saved. From the oppression of Pharaoh, but he is not capable of wiping out and cleansing them of their sin in the desert. He's, he can't do that. He didn't do that. Jesus, on the other hand, in perhaps the most clear way that Matthew's going to say he's even beyond Moses, is that Jesus saves them from oppression, uh, not the same kind of oppression as, uh, as Pharaoh. He saves them from the oppression, I think, of mind and heart and body, right? An oppression of uh, of demons, a spiritual oppression. He uh, liberates people from these sorts of things in his earthly ministry. But then the other thing that Matthew makes very clear, and he makes it very clear very early on, is that Jesus will do what Moses couldn't do. Jesus will save his people from their sins. Now, there's another thing about Jesus and Moses that I want to pull together, uh, and that is in Exodus chapter 20, God comes out to the people of Israel and God wants to uh, meet the people of Israel. He wants to talk with them. He's, he has them all. I think it's in Horeb and it's this big, great plain. And, uh, and God says, let's gather the people together because I'm going to speak to them. And so the people gather and God starts to come. He doesn't even come all the way. He just starts to come. And there's this like great violent wind and sound and terrifying thing that sounds like thunder. And all the people say, Stop! <laughs> We're not sure this is a good idea. And they say this to Moses. They say, Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. Right. And that sets a tone for the rest of Jewish history where there is now this this separation. See, all there's promise after promise after promise of God saying, I want to dwell among you. I want to be with you. I don't want to dwell in the tent outside the city. I don't want to dwell in some secluded part of a temple. I want to walk the streets with you. But when God tried to do that, the people rejected God. And so Moses becomes this intermediary figure that people get to God through sort of Moses. And then when Moses passes on, it becomes the tabernacle. And, and from the tabernacle, it becomes the temple. And, uh, and there is this intermediary between the people and God, there is this separation that cannot be bridged where God is over here and you ordinary people must be over here. Now then when 
Matthew announces in the, in the book of uh, Matthew, when he announces who Jesus is and what Jesus is going to do, and he's telling Joseph this, he says, uh, he's quoting from Isaiah, they shall name him Emmanuel, and then Matthew explains, which means God is with us. So that what Jesus will do is so much beyond what Moses was able to accomplish. What Jesus will do is he will tear the veil between the presence of God and the people. He will tear the veil between the presence of God and the people. So that when we think about hope today, what I want you to think about is the presence of God breaking forth into life, into lives. Because that's what this story is about. That's what the hope is of Christmas, is about the presence of God breaking forth into your life, into the lives of the past and into the lives of the future. With all that in mind, I'm now going to actually read from the book of Matthew. <laughs> this is the beginning. It starts out like this. An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon. This is the real reason I read this, because I didn't want to put you through it. Um, uh, didn't want to ask anybody else to have to do this. Nashon the father of Solomon, and Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and the Ma Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Je Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deport deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shal Shalathiel, and Shalathiel, Salathiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliad, and Eliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. I know I probably just put you to sleep, um, <clears throat> but the genealogy, why would he, why is, what's the point of putting that genealogy in there, right? It must not have been easy for Matthew to put together, uh, these were not like the Jews didn't keep like records of such things. You had to go and you probably had to go to Bethlehem and ask around if you really wanted to get it right. So the genealogy, I think, is the story of God's presence with Israel. Right. It's the story. It, these people are the central figures 
in the story from Abraham to Jesus. So that when you go to the Bible and you look, and you look at uh, the general region from Genesis to Matthew, the central figures of that story, of that first half of this book, are these people. These, this is the line of David, but it is also providentially the line of God's presence, the line of God's mercy, the line of God's greatness, the line where God broke through to human beings, in particular through and to the people of Israel. Now, uh, this genealogy has some curious mentions in it. Curious mentions. Uh, you'll see the, the name of, so Matthew quotes, names five women in the genealogy. And it wasn't terribly unusual to, to mention in a genealogy at the time a, a very special woman who had maybe accomplished a great deal of some, or had won some kind of notoriety. Um, but these five women were not, don't really fall into that kind of classification. Tamar uh, pretended to be a prostitute so that she could carry Judah's child. Uh, <clears throat> Judah was, did some pretty bad things in that story too, by the way. Uh, Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth uh, was not a, a prostitute, and really morally the story doesn't tell us anything shady about her, but she was a Moabite. Okay? And in, De in Deuteronomy chapter 23, God said that Moabites were not allowed to be members of the people of Israel for up to 10 generations. Somebody had to be separated from the tribe of Moab for 10 generations before they can marry in, uh, according to the law, into, um, into the people of Israel. So you've got two prostitutes and a Moabite. And the next one, the wife of Uriah, whose name uh, was Bathsheba. Bathsheba's story is... Uh, maybe the darkest of these stories because she turns out to, uh, to really be taken by David. Um, David sees her uh, and he lusts after her and he has her brought to his palace. And, uh, and then she becomes pregnant and Uriah who's mentioned here is, uh, <clears throat> is away. And so David tries to bring him back so that, there's a reason for his wife to be pre pregnant, and that doesn't really seem to work out. And so David has Uriah killed. Then the, uh, <clears throat> the story gets even, even darker. The prophet Nathan comes to David and accuses him of this great, uh, this great sin that he has committed to take another man's wife and then to kill that man. And then, uh, and then Nathan proclaims and pronounces what the, uh, what the penalty will be for what has happened. And it's the death of Bathsheba's child. And I've always thought about that and what kind of, kind of horrid moment that must have been for her. The story doesn't really give us anything of her will or anything of her design or anything of her desire. We don't know much about her at all but we do know she lost this child. And I can think of myself being in her position and wondering, maybe, maybe this life is worth ending. She's had everything in her life taken away. She's been taken by the king, and then her child will die. Of course, she has another child 
who becomes the king of Israel and is listed in this genealogy, Solomon. The next woman is Mary. Uh, perhaps it doesn't, it makes, there are really conventional reasons for mentioning Mary, right? Because she's Jesus' mother and it's the last generation and that seems to make a lot of sense. But there are some unconventional reasons for mentioning Mary since you've got all these other women and what happened to them in the story. The, uh, the mention of Mary, I think, has to do with this other thing that I'm going to try and explain. It's this word liminal. Uh, the word, so when I read scholars this week and I was reading about the genealogy, they kept calling these women liminal women. Okay, And I wasn't quite sure what that meant, so I started to do a little research. The word liminal comes from a Latin word for the threshold of a door. And it's used, uh, it's used to, in a lot of other fields of study, it's used to talk about um, transitioning from one place to another, right? So you're walking through the door, you're, you're uh, having a liminal experience, means you've transitioned from one thing to another. But it's also used to refer to a class of people who are sort of outside the family home. And in Israel, uh, these women absolutely were liminal women. In other words, if the... the <clears throat> The acceptable Israelites are inside the house. Across the threshold of the door are these women who have no place. Because what they had done, or what had been done to them, were things that uh, Israel deemed inappropriate and impure, and so they were to be excluded and to be outside. So that with Mary, obviously we, we all put our faith in, and, and we trust, and we... Uh, we believe that uh, she was a virgin and she conceived that way, but you can ex expect and understand why her society didn't believe that, right? And so to be, uh, <clears throat> to be with child before you're married made you a liminal woman, a woman of shame in this culture. Uh, and so these, these women have these things happen to them and, and, uh, and they're mentioned in this story, in this record, in this history of the presence of God breaking through. Not just this history, but the history of the presence of God breaking through, right? Matthew's whole point is, when you go through this, the whole story is pointing and leading towards this moment of Emmanuel. And these are the people who played a part, and these are the people through whom that was passed through, and people through whom the story moves. And I've been uh, thinking about... And I, I've been planning this sermon series for months and months and months. Um, but this week, obviously, there have been an awful lot of talk about uh, sexual abuse and harassment and, and all those sorts of things. And, uh, and I, I'm not going to comment on any of those situations. But it made me think about stories that I've heard as a pastor. Not so I'm not so concerned with the big, flashy stories. But many of the people in this church have told me stories of abuse, um, sexual or otherwise, of being put into dark places. All right, so that you didn't choose it. You didn't choose to be spoken to by your father that way. You didn't choose to, um, to be abused. You didn't choose to have these things happen to you. You, if you told your whole story, might be concerned 
that you would be labeled a liminal woman or a liminal man. You might think to yourself, I don't have a place in the story. You might think to yourself that this candle might as well be snuffed out for me. Sure, I'll go to heaven, but I'll probably be in some dark corner thereof. But when Matthew mentions these people, there's no mention of abuse, sins, standings. What matters is that the presence can come through questionable, sorrowful, scandalous, or even evil circumstances. One of my biggest worries about the way our culture deals with these big uh, issues of, uh, and circumstances of, of abuse and harassment is it seems to me that, that sometimes we, we place then labels on people as a victim and as if being a victim, that must be all that you are and your life must now just be defined by the fact that you are a victim. That we are, Our culture is really saturated in this idea of identity, right? Um, so that you're, you can't be a Democrat and other things, and you can't be a Republican and other things. You have to fit inside the box. And it really worries me when we do that to something that has happened to you. It really worries me when we do that even with our sins, and we say, uh, the, the hope of Christ is not enough. It can't move through me. But that is not the story of the genealogy. That is not Matthew's opening line. He says this is the beginning. Uh, the actual word is, uh, he uses the Genesis book. A literal word that he uses for the very first word of the book of Matthew is the word Genesis. This is the Genesis book about Jesus. This is the beginning. And from that beginning is scandal. In that beginning is sin. In that beginning is both those who've been abused and those who abused. And they are not named as such. The presence moves through it, through them through their circumstances, the presence of God will not be, the hope of God will not be deterred by your pain. The hope and the presence of God will not be deterred by your sin. Certainly if you hold out and say, I'm just going to sin and you go do what you want, that's deterring it. But you know what I'm talking about. What you've done. The hope and love and presence of Christ, the Emmanuel, will not be stopped because of our sorrow or because of our scandal or because of any evil circumstances. You too, wherever you are, whatever has happened to you, and you cannot tell me, well, I'm worse than all these people in this genealogy because you're not. You too can be someone through whom the presence of God breaks through to the world. You too can be a part of the continuing genealogy of Emmanuel. You too can be a carrier of the hope of Christ. You too. You too. And so we, we're going to finish today with communion. And, and Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, right? And uh, part of that remembering, I think, is to remember that you are not the sum of your sins or the abuses done to you. And when we come to Christ 
in communion and we remember what he has done, we must remember that that means that we are not just a sinner and we are not just a victim. We are renewed and transformed. We must remember the work of what the presence, what the hope does in our lives. So wherever you are, whatever you've done, whatever you hold inside your heart is your shame or your guilt or your sin or your pain. Bring it to Jesus and say, I know that you say that this is not who I am. As you remember him, as you remember him, instead, remember that Christ shall bring hope from both your sins and the abuses done to you. Because that's the story of Christmas, and that's the story of the genealogy. The good, the bad, and the ugly, the presence of Christ and the promise and faithfulness of God moved through these people. And so, you too. Us too. Remember what he has done. Remember what he is doing. Remember what he has promised to do. And so at, at this uh, time where I'm going to pray, and then uh, we have some strips of bread in the cup, and Sammy and I will be, be serving you, and, and you'll get the bread first, dip the bread in the cup, and take, uh, and take as much time as you need to prepare your own heart and your own mind before you come and receive uh, the cup that symbolizes his blood and the bread that symbolizes his body which is the presence of God, our hope. Let's pray. Jesus, I, I am compelled to remember and to remember out loud that, that David, David a, a, was a sinner, <laughs> a perpetrator. And I... I, I Thank you for the words written in the Psalms about, about you casting his sin as far as the east is from the west so that this promise could still be in him and move through his family. I thank you that we benefit from your presence and your love. I thank you that we continue to do so. I thank you for your grace and your mercy and your kindness to be near to us and to draw close to us, even in the midst of our sorrow, or in the midst of our pain, or in the midst of our sin. Compel us to repent and draw close to you in the words of Peter, and to see that you will wipe away every tear and every sin from who we are, and that you will transform us into bearers of your hope and your presence in this world. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.